So I have a confession to make. A few months ago, I completely stopped keeping up with news about climate change. I was reading an article about geoengineering and I couldn't finish it. All of these stories had started to sound exactly the same. All of them were full of the same kind of statistics and studies and all signs pointed relentlessly to this. We're basically screwed. I didn't know how reading about it could help at all, so I gave up. This also partially explains our radio silence these past few months. What is there left to say? Welcome to Green Good Radio, and thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Adam Pearson. If there's indeed nothing left to say, what are we doing here in the studio? Well, stay tuned to find out. Today's episode is called Thinking Outside the Green. Here's producer Diane Wu again. In October, I went to a talk by Chris Field, one of the authors of an international comprehensive report on climate change. Trajectory for the highest and lowest scenarios that were explored by the IPCC, and you can see there's dramatic changes in. Because of my environmental ennui, I hadn't read this important report, but one plot from his talk really stuck with me. It showed global temperature over the next 100 years or so, and it had three lines. The top line was business as usual, rocketing off to a bright red apocalypse. The bottom line was the drastic best possible future that would basically require us to stop using all fossil fuels tomorrow. And somewhere in between was a blue line tracing out a realistic possible future. Consequences of being in the the blue world and the red world there are, are, are dramatically different. And that middle line that. shook me awake. The space between the middle line and the do nothing line represents many averted disasters and much less human suffering. So, in order to get on that blue line, though, that requires a lot of proactive action. We need a lot of people trying out a lot of different things. We'll need better technology, such as more efficient solar cells, wind farms, electric cars. But we also need to change how people use energy. This is going to require solutions from outside the traditional scope of environmentalism. It will require thinking outside the green. And I remembered speaking with Ozzy Zaynert back in 2013. Ozzy was touring his book, Green Illusions, when Diane interviewed him. One key argument made in Ozzy's book is that environmental discourse is too heavily focused on energy production rather than energy consumption. In other words, the focus is on trying to clean up the supply rather than to curb the demand. Here's how he came to realize this. It really started for me uh, because I was an architect and I had this building, this client who was a diplomat in Washington, D.C., had a historic building and he wanted to live in a solar house. So this building was 100 years old and uh, we were going to retrofit it. And at about the same time the building was built, there were these two oak trees that had been planted on the western side of the building. And the trees were great because they blocked the sun in the summer, uh, and so the air conditioning load was much lower than it would have been otherwise. And then uh, in the winter, the leaves fell off the trees, and the sun would shine through the branches and warm the home's exterior. And so that was fascinating to me. And when I started looking at the, the energy calculations for the building, I found that this building was using thousands of dollars less uh, mm-hmm. in energy than some new houses that were built just down the street. And so to, to make the kind of long story short, uh, I 
ended up recommending to the client that they keep the trees. Right. Uh, of course, you can't keep, have trees and then have solar cells in the shade. And so I recommended not having the solar cells, but using that money toward energy efficiency techniques. And I was fired from the job for, for saying that. And so that was the time when I woke up and thought, hmm, I wonder what do we take for granted in the way we think about energy and the, the associations that we make between a certain technology and that technology being green. Uh, and then how do we translate those into our own lived experiences? Like uh, in this case, the, the diplomat who wanted to live in a house that's solar, he wanted not just to he didn't want just the energy, but he also wanted everything that comes along with being seen as clean and green. Ah, uh, yeah, the cocktail party solar panels. I can I can imagine it now, a few guys sipping on old fashions as they talk about how they've renovated their DC uh, row houses. And not only did they install solar to look cooler and more tech savvy and hip than the rest, but I'm imagining them also flashing their big rebate checks in each other's faces. It's not just the technology we're talking about, but a hybrid of, of, of pretensions and uh, assumptions and uh, symbolic values and political capital. And all of these things are rolled into what we call a solar cell. The, on a general side, I see that there's a lot of push for thinking about thinking about solutions in terms of energy production rather than energy reduction. And I think overall that's one of the biggest challenges that we have to face because there's something about uh, production that's a lot more sexy and a lot more alluring, a lot more exciting to think about than reducing energy consumption. Reducing energy consumption kind of seems boring and dull. And, uh, not that exciting. It's kind of old hat. There's, <laughs> you can't really, uh, there, there's not large uh, programs at universities that are uh, funded and organized around uh, energy reduction uh, in the same way as energy production. Ozzy experienced this fascination with production firsthand at a protest against the Keystone XL pipeline. He noticed that the protesters were pointing to wind turbines and solar cells as solutions to the environmental risks presented by the pipeline. He doesn't agree, though, that these are the best solutions. We have to be able to separate those false solutions, I guess I would call them, out of the movement to reduce energy consumption. And there was not a, for instance, a, a protest against energy consumption. There wasn't a protest to change the way we build our cities to make them more walkable and bikeable and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's the uh, ultimately the real issue that we're going to have to get down to. I've, all of it boils down to that consumption issue. So I guess more moving more towards the solution side, you have a, a lot of different approaches and different, I guess you call them first steps in your book, mm. of ways to start moving towards a, a less consumptive future. Are any of them your, your pet first steps? Oh boy, that, 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 that's difficult for me to answer because <laughs> there's a lot of them that I really them. like. Mm -hmm. um, if I had to pick out uh, a favorite one, it would probably be, well, right here in my community because it affects me so much here in San Francisco is, uh, to allow homeowners to use their garages as either small studios, studio apartments, or uh, allowing people to use them as large galleries or little small commercial spaces or something like that. And it doesn't seem like this would be 
something that would be a particularly high uh, energy priority or uh, environmental priority at all. But in fact, it it's a way to make our, our communities more affordable, uh, to make it a little bit more dense and give more people the option of being able to live in a city that they can get to things by walking and biking uh, mm-hmm. is vital. And as, in, as fossil fuel prices become more volatile in the future, that uh, ability of, uh, of living in a city is going to become uh, more attractive to a greater number of people. Okay, okay, Diane, you know, I, I got really excited when I first heard this. Um, Why is that, Adam? <laughs> I, I have a friend who had recommended uh, what would happen if we made office buildings uh, kind of rental spaces for, for sleeping at night. I mean, you know, you've seen, like, couches and you know, big fancy law firms or something. Imagine <laughs> some of them might be food towns or something. You pull them out, you charge instead of a hundred a night at a at a Best Western, you get a thirty forty buck a night deal, kind of like Airbnb but with commercial office space. I mean, why why the hell not? That sounds like a great idea. So I I, I love this idea of kind of uh, turning over spaces for things they're not used for all the time. Even though it's not an option that people would maybe immediately think of, I think making uh, housing available for people that's affordable uh, in the city should be one of the priorities. And uh, that's just allowing people to convert their garages over to studio apartments would make a big step in that direction. Uh, and it also would also help uh, you know, move transition away from the private car economy to um, maybe more car sharing and eventually hopefully more walking and bicycling. Uh, Mm -hmm. like we see in in cities like Amsterdam and Copenhagen. So right now it's not allowed for what reason? Uh, It's just zoning regulations. And we see that uh, a lot of the zoning regulations, in in my mind, are outdated because they were built or designed, uh, legislated during an era of cheap access to fossil fuels. And we no longer have that. And and that looks like uh, it's going to get worse, not better, Mm -hmm. in in the future. And so... uh, all of these rules and legislations that were enacted during that time of cheap fossil fuels are still on the books. And this uh, zoning uh, against density is, is one of them uh, that ends up getting uh, creating some problems. And th- the thing is, we don't need to build lots of skyscrapers or buildings in San Francisco. There's already thousands and thousands of, of these spaces that, uh, that could be simply be converted over mm-hmm. uh, to residential units. I guess, what's the process of changing zoning regulations? Is well, it- this is actually in San Francisco is something I'm already starting to look into it and there's another group uh, in San Francisco it's called Spur uh, which is largely funded by developers because developers have mm-hmm. <laughs> an interest in this because they could make money but that's a different story because it shows that you know everything that we try uh, to do has this side effect that are unintended consequences of producing more economic growth and that takes us down uh, a path where we need even more energy so I'm fully aware of that uh, but I think it's uh, it's getting citizens involved with making these decisions, with with becoming aware that there's a need for something like this, and then uh, it's great when people can work in their own neighborhoods to actually create uh, a change. Ozzy was careful to mention that changing zoning regulations may have unintended consequences that are hard to predict. He chooses to call his ideas first steps rather than solutions. I try to find the first steps that are congruent with people's interests because I feel if you could find things that, that interest people, a great number of people, then those things have the potential to catch on. And so all of the first steps in my book have nothing to do with uh, you know, the sacrifice or 
or, or giving things up per se, although that's perfectly uh, a legitimate course. Uh, but I think we need to also think of bringing people's uh, kind of selfish concerns, I guess you could say, onto the table as well as another strategy uh, of appealing to uh, to people's interests. And so that that's why I try to, uh, to develop these solutions around things that would actually increase people's uh, sense of well-being mm-hmm. at the same time as using less energy. Do you have an example for a way in which people were able to sort of be tricked into reducing their consumption while increasing their well-being? Hmm. To think about that one, <laughs> tricked in reducing their <laughs> consumption. There's probably not that many historical examples of being, people being tricked into reducing their consumption. Um, but one thing that that I think is kind of fun to to think about is uh, advertising to children. Uh, if you look to other countries like the Great Britain or Canada, uh, mm-hmm. their cartoons and children's shows don't take breaks uh, for advertising. Because they don't have they don't have advertising to children, it's illegal. And Sweden made uh, advertising to children illegal. Uh, uh, I think all children under 12 uh, in any method, whether it's by television or print or anything. And you know, child psychologists were saying that that these ads were leading to uh, poor nutritional habits and. Uh, and these sorts of things, and that's initially why they got banned. Uh, but then that has made a huge difference in, in consumer culture in the countries where it has been banned. And so that has been a welcome uh, benefit that we've gotten from, uh, that those countries have achieved uh, unbeknownst to them. Because, uh, in Sweden now, there was a uh, study subsequently that was done that found that children at Christmas asked for far fewer presents than children in countries with that that were exposed to advertising. That's maybe something that snuck in. <laughs> so, so in addition to learning about um, Swedish television habits today, I think the main thing I'm going to take away here today is that uh, our focus as a society, as policymakers, as consumers, as businesses, etc., has been uh, on supply rather than consumption. And I think a lot of this has to do with this sexiness factor or, or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. We've, we've had a couple interviews about efficiency, and what I really like are the things that have nothing to do with energy at face value at all. It's just yeah. like, oh, changing zoning regulations or limiting commercials on TV. These things, yeah. like, wouldn't turn off anyone yeah. just for the sake of being environmental. And are like reasonably good social choices to make anyways for the betterment of society and would also make us use less energy. So these (laughs) kinds of things are like win, 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 triple win. And um, it'd be good to focus our efforts on promoting that kind of stuff too. Yeah, I agree. You've been listening to the Green Grid Radio episode, Thinking Outside Green. This episode was produced by Diane Wu. Many thanks to our guest, Ozzy Zayner. Uh, I'd also like to thank Diane Wu for fact-checking this week. (laughs) All facts were checked. (laughs) Music in this episode provided by... The Free Music Archive. As usual. And you can find more information, as well as all of our episodes and blog posts, on greengoodradio.org. For the rest of the production team, this is Adam Pearson, and thank you for listening.